0: An operating system kernel manages the system resources that are needed to run applications. The Linux kernel runs most of the smart devices that we interact with, and it's the largest open-source project in history. Shua Khan has worked on operating systems for two decades, including 13 years at HP and 5 years at Samsung. She's worked on proprietary operating systems and a variety of Linux operating system environments, including mobile devices. Shua joins the show to discuss her work within Linux and her experience contributing to open source. Shua has made significant contributions to KSelfTest, a set of tests for Linux. Testing the Linux kernel is complicated because there's so much depth to the code base and such a variety of ways that Linux can be used... There's also a variety of ways that the operating system can get tested. There's smoke testing, performance testing, and regression testing. There are trees of tests, and as a developer, you may only want to run a subset of the tests. The conversation with Shua ranged from the low-level practices of testing the kernel to a high-level discussion of how the Linux kernel can reveal dynamics of human nature. It was great having Shua on the show. I really enjoyed the conversation, and it was at the Open Source Leadership Summit put on by the Linux Foundation. So thank you to the Linux Foundation for inviting me to that. Before we get started, I'll mention two events that we are having in the near future. One is the Software Engineering Daily Meetup at Cloudflare. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup to find out more. It's April 3rd, and it will be a conversation with Hasib Qureshi a cryptocurrency investor and friend of mine, and he's been an engineer at Airbnb and uh, many other places. He's really a great guy and interesting to talk to. So to find out about that event, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup. And the other event is the hackathon. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash hackathon. This hackathon is for a product I'm building called Find Collabs. It's a product for finding people to work with. On your projects we're having an in-person hackathon at app academy and we're going to hang out we're going to have some food it's going to be on saturday april 6th and you can find out more details at software engineering daily.com slash hackathon i would love to see you there if you're in the city or in the bay area and so software engineering daily.com slash meetup software engineering daily.com slash hackathon if you're interested in either of those now let's get on with the show Shua Khan, you are a Linux core committer. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. I want to talk to you today about operating system kernels. Let's start by just explaining what is the role of an operating system kernel.
1: Operating system is um, you have a piece of hardware, laptop, for example, and everything that uh a human needs to do on that operating system provides drivers and then core kernel core you have memory in the um laptop, and how do you initialize the memory? how do you set up the hardware? how do you get the drivers different pieces of hardware to a state working, for example audio on the laptop or your screen all of that is what operating system will do for you. it's essentially making the Uh, hardware usable for you to do, for a user to do what they need to do with that piece of hardware.
0: You've spent a lot of time on the testing process for the Linux kernel. When you're talking about these different elements of an operating system, like media playing, for example, how do you test something like that?
1: That is a good question. I do contribute to Linux media subsystem. And so how do we test? You have um, uh, you have a driver part, obviously, the media drivers, and then you uh, use various user space applications in terms of to do the end-to-end testing. There's a different levels of testing we do. Like, for example, we would just do, uh, does it boot for one thing? That's the first level of testing. And operating system, does the kernel boot, come up to user prompt, can you log in? Can you start applications, browsers and so on? So say you are talking about a particular uh, media driver, you have a USB stick that does digital TV or analog TV and so on. So you connect that. So does it power up with that? And then after that you go looking for, um, actually starting an application that would uh, start streaming perhaps and see, are you streaming? Can the application stream? Can you switch between channels and so on? So there's a different levels of testing. So to get to that level, you have to go through different level layers of verifying different pieces work correctly. And we also do some drivers, uh, DRM drivers, or video drivers, or um, digital media drivers, they also tend to do compliance testing. That means is the higher level application that is uh, using the API, kernel API, do they use it correctly? So there are tools that kind do compliance testing. Testing is a large area, depending on what you' are planning to do. Mm-hmm. So, as a developer, if I'm um, developing a, fixing a bug or developing a new feature, I have to first learn to understand what are the pieces that I need to use to test that particular part. And kernel self-test itself is a regression test suite. Over there, we have multi developers. As kernel developers, we come up with a test and say, hey, this is the test I want to run when I am taking a new patch, or I want to be able to just quickly apply the patch, boot the kernel, and run this test run this shell, it could be a shell script or a C program, just run it to make sure that the patch doesn't do any regressions. And in some cases, you have to verify that the new feature itself is doing what it says it does, right? So there is those two levels of testing. So kernel self-test is a suite of developer tests, so to speak. We go and do that kind of testing.
0: Is there a a sense of continuous integration or continuous testing in Linux kernel? Like I'm much more familiar with web development and you obviously have co- continuous delivery in, in web development. How does that compare to operating system development?
1: We do the, do that in the Linux kernel space. What happens is um, we have test strings that continuously take patches that are coming in and run various kinds of tests, like for example, just a compilation test. It could be kernel has uh, several configurations. We have various configuration options that can be turned on. For example, you might have a patch that compiles just fine, the developer compiles it and tests with it. And then once it hits the integration ring, um, it might fail to compile on some architecture or some particular configuration, for example. I386. It could fail on that, right? So we find those. Um we have several gits. Master, Linus's master git rip on kernel.org. And then we have Linux Next, which is we call the continuous integration. So we're doing continuous integration every single day. We have a Linux next release that we developers use to test stuff continuously. So does that Help you understand. It does, yes. Yeah.
0: You mentioned this tool, K self test. If I'm a kernel developer, what is my usage for K self test?
1: It is a test suite, so not so much a test tool. So, if you are a kernel developer, what you would do is you'll use the kernel repo, and you can kick off a. Um, it works from the kernel make file, main make file you will run, you will check out your kernel sources, and then you'll compile the kernel and say make case self test. What that does is it'll build all the tests that we have, and it'll run through all of them, and then give you results for that. So the way I I use it, and then also a lot of developers use it, is they will either run the entire test suite, or they go into a particular subsystem, and then run just those subsystem tests. Like, mm-hmm. for example, MM. Somebody that it made it change to the kernel MM space, they would just go run that particular subsystem. You can run individual subsystems tests as well using... Um, there's multiple knobs that you can use, so you can go look at one sys subsystem and say, "Hey, I want to just run tests in that subsystem," or "I want to just run tests in this per- on this particular driver." So that's that's the kind of knobs they use. And then in some cases, it could be installed on a a target test system, and it can tests can be run on the target. For example, kernel uh, Linaro test forms, they use that. They take Kernel self test They build it on their development system, and then they take it over to a target system and they run it right after they boot the kernel.
0: How does that fit into my workflow as a developer? Like, it, am I maybe I'm tinkering on some high level element, and then would I want to run K self test on some lower level elements that are underneath that? Like, how am I using this suite of tests tactically?
1: So it depends on who you are right so if you are a kernel developer and you made a kernel change you want to verify that kernel change before you send the patch up in that particular case you will go you will make sure that you run the kernel self test either particular to your area of the change you made and make sure that nothing broke as a user say you are you have you just installed a, a new kernel and you wanted to make sure that your kernel nothing regressed on your side of things so you could run it um, as a distro provider or a user or a embedded developer you could go embedded some embedded platforms they'll use older revisions of the kernel like mm-hmm. for example lts releases long-term releases they're not always on the main line kernel so they if they want to verify nothing broke in that case, in I would run the, whole, the whole suite. Correct. As users, you would use the whole suite.
0: Hmm. But in the, su- the subset, when would I want to use the subset?
1: The subset, if you tweaked, pay, tweaked. fixed to something, Got fixed it. to something or added a new feature. So so the uh, most of the kernel developers, um, what what we do is as a development process, when we write a new feature, we would in some cases, we would write new tests mm-hmm. to go with that new feature. Mm-hmm. And then we make sure that the existing tests didn't, as as we made this new change to the kernel, that we did not break anything. That's the regression part of it, which we already have in the kernel cell test. We add a new test and say, hey, from now on, we want to test this feature. First, we want to test this feature that does it work the way it's expected to work? And then going forward, as other changes keep coming in, does this feature, feature continues to work the way we want it to work?
0: Just to give the listeners some perspective for why testing is such a big deal for Linux, Linux is, of course, running in extremely sensitive environments. You have um, mission-critical things that are life and death, and And it's really important that bugs don't sneak into lower level aspects of the code. Linux is also very complicated. There's many different kinds of Linux. There's different kinds of devices that run different versions of Linux. And because of that, the amount of tests and the different subtrees of testing types uh, can get quite detailed. Can you Describe the, I guess, the testing tree or how the tree of different tests across Linux is managed.
1: Within the kernel, we have uh, kernel self-tests. That's really one single place that we have tests, right? User-visible tests that can be run. Individual drivers and subsystems, they could have some tel- self-test they kick off and run. Like for example, you will have a test code, dr- driver, for example, or a um, subsystem might expose certain test teams or uh, interfaces to just the testing programs. So you would, the test, uh, kernel self-test, tests use that to exercise the kernel. Of course, kernel uh, testing is very important. That's the part of um, validating qualifying kernel is really important because it is the foundation piece in any of the linux ecosystem you want to have those bits so it, 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 it so that so we have various methods to in the kernel to verify things like for example we have if i am uh, writing a uh, changing a driver for example i would go turn on configuration options in the kernel that make sure that my locking is sane that <laughs> means i'm not locking here and leaving the lock leaving that lock not unlocking it those that lock and unlock are balanced so i can i can go into the kernel and say i want to turn on those options so which 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 is i do so and then in other cases there we have other debug options that will go and say Um, look at case on, for example, address sanitization. So we can turn that on and then it'll go make sure it's these are all not something that you would turn on in the field, right? But you would do it during the development or you would do it as a validation mechanism before saying everything looks good. So you would go and say, hey, I'm going to turn on address sanitizer and tell me if I have any um, memory that I am using after free or um, any kind of stuff, uh, memory issues I might have that 's one example so we have various tools within the kernel configuration options, compile time configuration options that we can turn on and debug, so we use all of these mechanisms and in addition, we in tom- some cases we have tracing we can turn on tracing on trace events, like for example, um, you are um, you have a host and then you are KVM, you have a VM running. So you say, hey, I want to take this device and assign it to the VM. So we can, if we are interested in looking at, hey, how this process is working, is it correctly working? So we can go and turn on trace events, so during runtime, and then turn them off if we want.
0: tracing is an Mm -hmm. interesting one because uh, well, I, I've done some shows about mm-hmm. distributed tracing. I'm assuming tracing is somewhat just non-distributed tracing is somewhat similar, where it's measuring the latencies through the different paths that it's that a, a call might be taking, or it's measuring at least that the call is is making its way through the different lower levels. Or I guess maybe you could define what tracing right. is.
1: In this particular case, these are trace events, um, a, a way for us to uh, get a feel for how. A particular user action might be taking paths similar to that. It's kind of taking paths in the kernel, and we want to make sure we are tracing the path it's taking. It could be used in two ways. It could also be used how fast something happens, Mm -hmm. performance tracing. And the other aspect is, is it taking the right paths in the kernel that you expect you to take right. so as a debugging tool so those are two different uses of that S- i think what i'm what i'm getting at is that we have multiple ways to debug and test the kernel mm-hmm. and then we use depending on the uh, depending on what we are doing as kernel developers we all we do we use all of those avenues to test the kernel during development integration and then debugging
0: so if I had some change and then I ran a performance trace on it and there was a small increase in latency mm-hmm. due to that change, how would you know if that performance penalty is is like a bug or is something that would be considered a regression? Because sometimes, you know, you, it's a tolerable increase in latency. It's not a big deal. Nobody's ever going to recognize it. Is there some judgment that's involved in that process?
1: Um, yes, yes. Depending on w- how bad the performance impact is and why that, um, why it's introduced, you have to, f- the way I go go about it is I have to first root cause and say, why did, why am I seeing the change? So what happened? Is that change, can that change be explained or is it, is it avoidable? Um, maybe there is something in that path I introduced uh, something that that I might have an alternate mechanism that does not introduce that performance penalty. It all boils down to root-causing and analyzing. Is it absolutely necessary to do so? And in which case, the code n- needs to be rewritten, right? I mm-hmm. mean, you know, e- there might be a better way to do that piece of code. or um, And so, so th- there's, there's, it depends on what kind of performance impact and how it can be solved. It also depends on the nature of it.
0: What are some other judgment calls you have to make? So, you know, latency might be one. Like, okay, is this latency actually going to matter? Like, let's say you do a root cause analysis. You find that, um, okay, the root cause is actually, like, just a trade-off that we made in the code, and it's actually just going to increase the latency, but it's not a big deal because it's something that's asynchronous and it doesn't actually matter. So we're going to just leave it in there. Um, But are there any other... The areas of, of testing that like here's an example you might say <clears throat> okay we introduced this new module and um, we've written a hundred tests for it we could write a thousand more should we write a thousand more tests so that's an example of, of a subjectivity kind of question like the question of do we have enough testing
1: so testing is an interesting thing you really have to verify even the test code, right? Test code. Test code itself is could be buggy. So there is always a balance of how much testing. It needs to be targeted testing, in my opinion. I mean, you can have. Uh, that's that's how I view testing. I go and look at um, how. You can verify. There's two kinds of testing, right? White box and black box. You probably heard about that. Functional testing versus overall testing. Black box testing would be a lot of a lot of the kernel developers. We are fun- doing functional testing and white box testing. We kind of know what, in some cases, what to look for. Some of the some of those tests are important because. If something shows up in a white box type testing, functional type testing, like lock imbalance, it will ultimately show up in a black box user mm-hmm. test case. When user is using, they will run into it. So do they run into it after 10 hours of use or one hour of use? That's a different thing. So is it a race condition or is it going to happen all the time So there is always a balance to me um, you have to it, I there is a mix of white and black box type tests that would make a, a good test suite. I can't quite def- put a number on it. Saying, "Okay, should you be writing thousand tests? You might be writing thousand tests that really don't, aren't useful, or you could be running one single test that's really useful." Mm-hmm. So, um, I recently <clears throat> had to do this. I was uh, I maintain USB or IP driver, and we have had some security uh, issues that came up in that driver, and then I fixed. Several of those. And then I was sitting down and looking at it, and I thought, is there a one shell script I can run that could exercise all of the different paths? And it took me some time to come up with it. Hmm. I was kind of sitting there and I'm going, okay, this is what I do when I'm testing this. And so, okay, can I somehow? put that in an automated form, and then put it in a shell script, which I did. So now I run through that test, and that actually finds a lot of things. Like, for example, if I go um, do some kind of action, like attaching a device, that's what the driver does, attach the device. And can I detach it? Or can I... attach you have to think through the process of things that could happen like for example somebody it's attached it's in particular state so you have to have when I'm writing a test I kind of have this uh, state transition in my head I might not actually put it down but I kind of go okay mm-hmm. somebody could come in and ask for the device that's already in use what do you do do mm-hmm. with in that particular case. So you kind of have to think through and then automate as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Obviously you cannot automate everything. So we have, um, I was recently testing, um, I'm doing a media um, feature on the media resource sharing feature recently. I have a patch test, batch series out for review. So I was looking at that patch series and I'm going, how do I test all of the exclusion cases? So I came up with a set of applications I can use. So I'm running all the manual tests. And because a lot of these, Applications I'm using are not low level enough that I pretty much have to have their GUI based or they you need to kick off a streaming and such. It takes a manual effort. So now I have a document while I was doing that. I wrote this tablet form, okay, Uh, of if the device is in use by this application, can the other application use it or do you see busy? So I have this tables sitting there that I need to go back in the next few weeks or couple of months to see how I can automate it. So you always start with a manual testing Mm -hmm. and then say, look at the manual testing and then say, can I automate this Mm -hmm. somehow using the tools I have or is it possible I can automate? So these are all the processes I go through anyway. So in my, when I'm doing work.
0: What about security testing? How how does that fit into your workflow?
1: As as, so security testing is um, like, for example, hey, I mean, in, in terms of denial of service, is a kind of a security kind of problem, right? So somebody, if if you could get a system to a state, it's not responsive, that in itself is a is a problem. Mm-hmm. So you, security testing spans a mul- range of general kernel testing itself. There is. The specific aspects of so we in, in for for the driver I was looking at any time user can get a system into a state where it's not responding or it panics or crashes. Those are the security vectors you have to look at. Networking, for example, networking it uh, involves. Uh, getting user packets from the user space, for example. So can somebody send you an offending packet into data, into the kernel via a network packet, and how does the kernel react to it? That's one angle. So you have to kind of think through that. And there is a lot of effort going on in the kernel uh, right now, fuzzing. Uh, we go and look at the fuzzing, and, we, uh, and there are fuzzing tests that get run, and then we have a backlog of bugs, of course. So we look at those and we see how to fix them, right? In some cases, it could be injecting errors. We have a way of injecting um, certain errors to see how the system reacts. And some of those are um, security related, right? I mean, you could, could you... And also, can user a re, no, regular user, can they get visibility into the... Um, cardinal memory, and can there are security is multiple aspect. Can a user view privileged data? So it's, it's various aspects of that. I am I am starting to look at some of the, the bugs that we have at the moment, and then in um, the, the Google uh, Sysbot sorry Sysbots, um, they are doing a huge effort on finding some of the problems. So I am starting to look at those and see what can. I do in terms Can of.
0: Can you fix. talk
1: more about that? The fuzz testing. Fuzz uh, testing is um, um, automated. Automated. It's, it's a lot of it is auto, auto-generated code. Like for example, so okay, one it's kinda, example. Kind of
0: like chaos testing, right?
1: I believe so. So let me explain one of the one of the tests they do. They'll they'll do a user. Um, this is one example of a test that they do. So system calls. Kernel has a bunch of system calls. So user program will just invoke all of the system calls and pass them, say, invalid data. How do system calls react to it? And driver, any driver that has outside user-visible IOCTLs, I- 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 IOCTLs, I- o- C- T- so call all the IOCTLs with um, bad memory or passing in bad, bad values or error injection, really. depend. How does the... React to it. That's that's the, those are the two examples I can think of at the moment. of fuzzing what that's What kind of stuff happening.
0: does that reveal? What kind of problems?
1: Um, in in one of the cases, um, this is a um, this is a bug I actually fixed. One of the cases is um, it, it would react boundary kind of conditions. What mm. would what would um, so in one of the cases when such t- testing happens. If you have pass an invalid invalid flag, for example, it go down a kernel path it shouldn't take. It, for example, should be able to detect that it's a invalid, and not access out of bounds memory, for example. Say use I, this Iactal I'm just throwing this out right, so it's, it's not necessary or necessarily true, but or necessarily real problem in the kernel. Say you, you have a uh, use, user can pass in a range of, for a value, one through 255 or whatever. If the I-actyl comes in and then that i specifies specifies uh, the wrong range, does the kernel start to access memory that it shouldn't access and go down a path mm. and get, encounter a panic or a warning or a, you know, it will, the driver itself run into an error that potentially could impact mm. the other subsystems.
0: Mm. Now, would, would fuzz testing help prevent something like heart bleed from making it to, product? heart bleed where, you, if I remember correctly, you basically had a buffer overflow problem, right? That, that was a, a vulnerability because people could, could ac- you know, access buffers that they shouldn't. Have been able to
1: some of the. Are you talking about some of the recent problems that no, you, not Specter re- kind of no, thing? not Specter. Oh, it Was okay. the one
0: before that Heartbleed? I don't remember it very well. Yeah. Bro. I don't. Okay, yeah, all right, that's fine. Yeah, um, right. Well, what about Specter? So, uh, I, what was Specter? Was the uh, I don't know if you if you can if you can articulate what that was and.
1: Um that is related to hardware right i i can't say ah. i i can't i can't uh speak to it that much okay. um because i don't but it is um it is a part of it is um exposing we have several cpus thre- with uh, different threads in threaded cpu in this is hardware right so will one process have can a one process user process can access another user process. It will will be will have the ability to to look at data that's not privy to it yeah. or it has privilege to look at. So that's at, at a higher level that is the core of the problem right? Mm-hmm. So but yeah, memory management isn't, it's a very complex piece. I can't say I know much about it.
0: Ah, so. okay. Hey, do you know much about like Testing it, or how well one can test.
1: We have several management? tests in in the kernel self test suite that we do use to test. But when I am, I'm, I don't, I don't play in that area that much mm. to know. Okay, the extent of testing.
0: Right. Okay.
1: How do you test
0: networking for a single node operating system? Like Linux is is a single node operating system but it's op- often, you know, networking with other nodes. And I, I assume there are certain tests you would want to run that would involve multiple nodes. Um, w- what's the process for testing those?
1: You're talking about networking between two different systems? Yes, or you're between two about-
0: different operating systems.
1: Oh, I see. You're talking about almost, um, you're talking more about, say you have a almost like heterogeneous kind of st- testing that you have different op- operating systems yeah running two their systems. own networking stack
0: yeah well, for two, example exactly and, mm-hmm. two two different operating systems talking to each other is is that in the purview of a case self-test or
1: no it's not but okay. I have done it in the past I used to work on NFS um, kernel um, NFS part uh, for um, HPUX. It's network like file system. Correct. So, at, in though in that time, um, when I was working on that, we would actually have, um, um, interconnectivity f- fests, we call them hack fests or inter-, inter interconnectivity mm-hmm. fests. So we would, um, th- that is one of the objectives being able to uh, say it can, um, uh, NFS can interoperability does interoperability work at that level will you be able to NFS is just an example but TCP IP stack for example so you will you be able to take out uh, could you have a client running on a Windows system for example and then you have a server running on Linux so how does the communication work um and if you have nfs is again packeted packets right you have like and any other a packet uh, you would take a packet you're sending messages back and forth is it interpreted correctly on both sides depending on the stack so in that particular case you would run tests to make sure that's that's one of the tests you could do both mm-hmm. doing both client and server side have the reverse if your application, say, it's a server client model, and if you want, I don't know if we talk about server clients anymore as much with the cloud, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but that is the kind of testing that you would do to make sure that even when you have different networking stacks involved on either side, that you are, it's a TCP IP protocol, right? You'll, if, if you follow that protocol, it should work, but and then the other aspect that I ran into, I had to deal with is that if you have a, um, you might have the same operating system, different architectures could come into play, based on uh, big endian versus little endian. But that's all networking. You have to worry about those aspects as well when you're designing the um, messaging format messaging packets. I'm not talking so much about TCP IP. For example, you came up with your own, um, you're using UDP as a base, but you're using your own uh, application level protocol on, on the top. So you have to worry about those aspects. So is that? Yeah. Is that what you're looking for? I'm, yeah, I was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Now you
0: were at HP for 13 and a half years. Correct. What'd you learn about operating systems at HP?
1: I was working on, uh, I, when I was um, at HP, I was doing uh, HPX kernel code. I worked on the low-level um, PCI Express drivers, a lot of the ACPI That's code. an
0: operating system HP built?
1: Mm-hmm. HP's version of Unix, right? It's a, uh, I believe, I think it's a probably at some point a BSD-based one. And yeah, it's, um, it's yeah. And then it's a big N because uh, that's the big thing with the... Uh, um, so you
0: say, Big Indian,
1: Big Indian. Okay, right. yeah, I'd say. So we um, IA64. Um, that's one of the ones uh, early IA64 servers I worked on, and Paresk as well. So my fun uh, experiment with that was when I, when we were bringing up new system, IA64 system, we took the ACPI, and then we had to make sure that Big Indian worked. I mean, Intel didn't worry too much about the Big Indian because they don't have any Big Indian systems, so. Had to go through and make sure, and I, w- I did a lot of um, PCI Express work where HP's servers. There was large 64-way, 32-way, 16-way servers, even 8-way. We did uh, on we supported online replacement on those PCI Express online replacement. What that means is you could yank a card out and replace it, and so all of that goes all the way from when you get a there is a way sequence of things to do you push a button and you say okay it goes into driver has to go into a a state and then drivers have to detach itself and then you go into ACPI and make it make sure that you actually get it ready for removing the device and then you put the new device back in and it has to recognize so it kind of spans from all the way from low level ACPI all the way into the user level that was fun mm. I lost a lot of thumbs doing that because you had to actually pull them out. <laughs> so what well, is this was fun? So that's uh, that's the that's the work I did. And then I also worked on shutdown paths. For hmm. example, you know, how to gracefully shut down in various cases. Why is that the hard? system? It's just the way some of the internals of the operating system worked in terms of do I remember even now? <laughs> so um when you have a 64 way system or when you have multiple um, CPUs, you have the, sh- the way the operating system, the internals of the operating system worked, you had to gracefully shut them down in terms of various. It's not hard, it's not hard, halt, halt, mm. halt per se, but coordination between different CPUs. Mm.
0: Okay. It's well, just, well what know, can go wrong?
1: Um, you you might um, one CPU might choose to not. Okay, so this is this is very internal to that particular operation This is not going to span. That's totally fine. So, <laughs> so, oh gosh, I don't remember Okay, no problem. The don't worry about to it. To the extent you're asking, yeah, <laughs> don't worry about so, it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Samsung. What about mm-hmm. Samsung? So you worked there. Uh, Samsung makes mobile operating systems. Mm-hmm. I guess at that point, we're talking about Linux. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the world of mobile operating system development.
1: It's it's, um, it's a very different. So I came from doing large 64-way type Sys servers, and I don't think I ever worked on desktop as much, but going to all the way to going to really small phones, right? So... One of the things um that one of the things that they encounter is there is a lot of um vendor drivers that sometimes vendor drivers that come into play, and there is a lot of pressure of time to market type things. So one of the things I realize I noticed is that it is hard for them to go um take keep up with the main line in a lot of different cases like for example you know you they they the, when they release a product and obviously everybody wants their phone to be working i mean i i think i'll get mad if my phone isn't working so it's harder for them to move to main new mainline kernels as fast as they would want to because they have reasons to keep it keep up with the mainline because Mainline has new features coming in. New, they do. We all want to move to the mainline because mainline Linux kernel has uh, more features, right? Mm. It's continuously we're fixing bugs, mm. we're adding new features. Sure. So we want to move. At the same time, you also want to keep your product stable. Mm. So it is a continuous mm. balance of the two activities. And in some cases, some cases they the phone vendors want to stay on a long-term release. So if you out. just
0: continually try to merge with mainline, are you going to get merge conflicts or are you just going to get errors in how the code interacts?
1: You could get merge conflicts. And then also in some cases, um, phone vendors might have their own tree that they are keeping internally because they might fix problems they are encountering. They might not have time to upstream those, send it upstream, the fixes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the merge conflicts plus something might break. I was That is one of the things I was doing when I was at uh, Samsung. One of my activities was uh, to make sure uh, Sam's devices that are important to Samsung product teams continue to work on the mainline kernels. Mm. So I would take mainline kernels and make sure that that um, helped some of the product teams move to to newer releases quicker, that activity itself.
0: And when you say mainline, is it mainline Linux or mainline Android?
1: I'm sorry, I'm talking about Linux kernel that okay. we do um, from the Linux kernel.org okay. mainline.
0: Okay, and how does the, the managing the divergence between Linux and Android work?
1: Android is, um, there are two parts to the to all these phone platforms, right? Uh-huh. You have the underlying system, uh-huh. which is the system software, which is kernel. Plus, if you look at your phone and looked at system details, you'll see a kernel revision. And three dot something or four dot something, that is the actual kernel revision that they might freeze on. Like, for example, we'll have, we have, uh, do, you, do you know how the, we probably don't have visibility to to all of the stuff we deal with in the kernel space, right? So what Linux's um, Git mainline, that is continuously moving. It's It has the new features coming in. And we do releases once in about eight weeks, once every eight weeks, a new kernel release comes out. Mm-hmm. So during those eight weeks, seven to eight weeks, we are doing integration, continuous integration you're talking about. So... There is a two-week window between releases. This eight weeks is part of that. First two weeks after a new release comes in, that's when all of the maintainers and we are sending patches, pull requests to Linus. And Linus pulls them in. And then the first two weeks is that. It's just ending. This will end this Sunday Mm. for um, 5.1. So after that, we are fixing stuff that we found in this the code base we just did. Linus just pulled in the two weeks. So that continues depending on uh, the comfort level, depending on how many patches are coming in, fixes coming in, that will settle in the four to five weeks. And then the next release comes out. Very often, the products, like for example, phones or Samsung and Google or any other phone vendors, and even uh, some of the distros, Ubuntu, Or um, they all say, okay, this is what we want to base our next release on. Or this product, this Samsung Galaxy Tenor, this is the kernel release we want to base it on. They usually always use a stable release. And Greg Rohartman maintains maintains the stable releases. He's been on the show. I'm sorry?
0: He's been on our show. Yeah, right, right. That was a good right. good episode. Very interesting. <laughs> Great.
1: So he probably went, took you through that oh, process. Yeah. Well, right. I don't
0: remember very much of it, <laughs> right. but it was very deep. That's a detailed show.
1: <laughs> right. So what Greg does is as soon as uh, 5.0, for example, just came out like two weeks ago, he'll start to maintain uh, that as a stable release. And there's a couple, three other releases that are always um, always stable releases that keep, keep getting fixed fixes from the mainline. So when we fix, a, say, a security problem or a driver bug or, and we look at it and say this is maintainers decide that or maintainers and developers who are fixed that problem will decide whether this is should go into stable or not and then it'll go into the stable. So st- stable releases, we have like couple, three stable releases. And then vendors sometimes request and say hey we would like this particular release to be long term stable which is longer length than I think it's like 5 ten years, 5 years i think say so it we it, it its decision is made at the time how long it should be so the way it works is every new feature goes into uh the main line which is linus's tree, and then stable trees get fixes from there. So product teams, I mean, individual companies and phone uh, product teams, they decide based on, they try to get their drivers and so on that need to run into the one of the main lines. And then they use that, whichever one has all of their content in to get their product running, they will stabilize on that meaning they will pick that as their release to do the release and after that they will be they will keep moving their kernel uh to with the fixes and then they'll take merge they keep merging stable releases
0: are there ever conflicts between these major companies a conflict between Samsung and some other phone vendor or are they mostly j- pretty aligned when it comes to operating system stuff?
1: They are we it's open source at the, at that point, right? It's a Linux kernel community that um they work in. So c- conflicts in what way? are you thinking about? I don't know, about?
0: judgment, priorities.
1: So as open source developers, we uh, we're looking to work in open source, right? Like, for example, we might have wear two hats, but at the same time, we're always looking to work with... Mm. Uh, we don't think of it as... Um, in in a sense, we don't necessarily um, think of ourselves as belonging to one company or the other uh, because that's not very really productive because mm-hmm. you want to do... You want to do uh, advance the kernel the way that scales and improves for the betterment of large general, general features as opposed to specific features or a product-specific feature, for example. And if there is a product-specific driver, I mean, it, it's still a component, it'll come in uh, that will be... In the driver space, if it's a, there is a driver that's needed for a phone to run, that will be part of the driver. And then, for example, Samsung would contribute that code and they will maintain that. I don't, we, there is no, um, we, I can't think of a conflict that mm-hmm. we will have about a feature that, you know, this is, it, people are willing to listen and say, hey, uh, we want this, but it needs to be generic as well. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question or are yeah, you looking no, for something?
0: No, no. so what I think is interesting about Linux is it's this enormous project. It might be the, the most people project significance intersection, uh, the, you know, the biggest mm-hmm. project managed by the most people with the most impact in human history. I, I, don't, I don't know of, of another. I can't think of another. Um, what has your work in the Linux project taught you about human nature?
1: Um, that's a good question. So it's, again, a collection of individuals, which is, um, I find uh, working in the Linux kernel, I have worked on a lot of projects before I started working in working in the open source and then um, contributing to Linux kernel. My sense is that people are welcoming, they would want you to do your best and contribute. They will give feedback because you are putting yourself out there with a large number of. When you send a co- piece of a patch out, right? You do not know what kind of comments you would get back. So you have to. I have learned. I mean, it's a growth process. You have to learn about. You have to figure out. It's a self-discovery as well. You kind of go, how do I? Until you actually send your code out, and then when somebody. Uh, says huh there is a better way to do this Um, you have to understand that you have to say huh yes that is a better way to do it and then you have to it's a self discovery process of when somebody points out something would that bother you or how would you react to it so it's self discovery aspect you should be able to take uh, feedback and criticism and there is always always—if when you look at uh, Six thousand or seven thousand or ten thousand people, there is always a percentage of the people. a large percentage of those people want to work with you, and there could always be somebody that doesn't want to or you know you you'll see different kinds of personalities, mm. just like any community um, yeah, so what I found that works well for me is I like to the way i like to work is um that I would take the feedback and then look at the feedback and say, hey, then end of the day, we all are working to introduce the best code, the one operating principle, right? Mm. So we might have differing opinions on what is best. So at that point, communication becomes very important. So if you want to survive in open source community, you have to have good communication Mm. in terms of being able to explain, being able to... Explain your the problem you're solving and then also other interpersonal issues as well in terms of how would you react to uh, feedback and criticism or how would you go back and say, hey, I understand what you're saying, but this is what I'm thinking. So be able to have that conversation. And it's a process.
0: And I imagine delivering criticism and delivering feedback is is also an art.
1: Correct. Those are, uh, yes. Obviously, yes. So, it is tough. It's a tough process. Both are tough. Giving, uh, criticism, giving feedback in a way that uh, you want to uh, give a feedback in a way, it's very constructive. Yeah. It, 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 and it has to be taken, viewed the same way as well. So, both are tough. So, it teaches you a lot about just humans, that we are all humans, we are not perfect, and we make mistakes, and we have to be understanding of each other, and then keep going.
0: Sounds like a great feedback loop, though, personally, for, like, personal self-improvement of communication skills.
1: Oh, of course. Yeah, it is. I have learned a lot. I mean, you know, I, yes, it is, it is a, I mean, I do, I have taken, I mean, there is one thing I remember from a while back, I took a technical communication type class. Hmm. How do you interact with, in teams, or how do you? So one of the things that stayed with me, and I still use it, is if you ever have a situation where it's emotional situation, or then you want to not match emotion with emotion. Try to because if you it's like adding fuel to the fire right so so if you you have to sit back sit back and say hey what can I say that would doesn't add contribute if somebody is getting upset about it about something I mean it's actually something to use even in personal life too somebody is getting upset about something you don't want to say something that upsets them more because at that point, communication stops. You have to stop and think, how could you end? Thankfully, in email-based communications, it is actually easier <laughs> in a way, right? In a Sitting in a meeting room, actually talking about code, it's a little bit different in a way than... Uh, doing it over email because so you, if you have mistake, time to, yes, if you make a mistake, there is a delete button, right?
0: <laughs> well, there's a delete button, but somebody probably has an audit log. And, <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. No, I mean, email, if it's, you're sending email, yeah. you can always look it over multiple times. I mean, That's at least true. look at it one more time right. before you hit the send. That's, you know, um, send button, right? <laughs> So you can kind of look it over and say, how am I, how, how would the other person take it? We might not think about it. I mean, you know, so, so email gives you that little bit extra time. I'm saying email based communication or that little bit of extra time to think about it and say, hey, um, you know.
0: Definitely. I like how Google and Gmail recently now you have an undo button after you send the email, which is, I mean, it only lasts for like three seconds or something. Right. But like if you actually make the emotional mistake the undo button you're like oh okay okay undo 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 <laughs> right. you know you've got a three-second window
1: Oh, it could be an emotional mistake or it could be something i have done this i would just be thinking something and then i i just come up with oh gosh this is a real problem right i mean with this right. piece of code and it could be mine uh-huh. um and then i would just rush, respond in a russian and go man i should have thought about it a little more and right say, you know it could be it could be uh, not just emotional; it could be something else too. You're not yeah. thinking, thinking through, and you are kind of thinking going down the wrong path, and you kind of just like, oh, "Okay, this could happen," and you go, "No, that can never happen," yeah. you know. And then, but it's now that it, it, you know. So, so that is, and then another aspect I found. I mean, I have been, um, I have done uh, mentoring within Samsung, and I'm used to mentoring at HP as well. Um, it, I, I I have been on both sides. I and mean, I mentored and then I was a mentee as well. So I learned a lot in both aspects. So one thing I found is it's um, open source is great place to do collaborative work. I mean, we're doing so much collaborative work, but it is always a difficult for somebody to get over the apprehension and fear of um, making their work public. So that is a Mm. journey you just have to make if you want to be, you have to be, you have to want to do that Mm. because it's so much easier to not have to do that. It's so much easier to work on a project that isn't open source and you can do the work you do and you have a few peers that look at the code and then it goes in right Um, but it is a journey you have to make when you are setting out to to be vulnerable to have your work critiqued by lots of people and I see that in the process I have mentored lots of engineers and it's a process for them there it's an apprehension for one first they don't know where to start because I mean I struggle with it too like for example I told you I don't know much about MM <laughs> or I don't know much about scheduling. You know, like Linux is, it's a huge project. And there is so many areas, not one person can be an exp- I mean, nobody can be an expert at everything. So we all have our pieces that we are good at. And then if you don't look at a subsystem for a, f- uh, a couple of years, it moves that it is hard to even keep up. Uh, that that's how much development goes on, so what happens as a result is there are lots of smart engineers. It's hard for them to kind of wrap around where do I start? This is a huge cookie. Where do I start biting from mm. right so that's the first thing I notice, and the second thing is getting over that apprehension. What if I make a mistake? How would people react to it? Am I going to look dumb? <laughs> you know so you have to go through that process so yeah. Hmm.
0: Last question. How has your work within the Linux community changed your perspective on computer science?
1: Computer science, well, when I, the human impact of technology, so or just open source and Linux and is um, mind-boggling to me. We have changed in the last just 10, 15 years. It changed our lives so much that we the way we communicate has changed the way we interact with each other it has changed how do we the way we conduct business has changed and then touches our lives in a ways that we don't even know right oftentimes I would talk to people people that aren't familiar with technology or you know don't i mean they use their phone, but they don't really know what that means, right. And then, so I think I am, and then the uh, the whole AI and deep learning and all of these are based on computer science. So it is amazing to see in the last 20 years how much, how many lives it is touching. So I have always thought that computer science is a combination of, uh, it's an art and a science. And there is a lot of creativity involved. So, it's a different kind of creativity. You're not, you know, painting a picture. But it is similar to that. It's a creative process. So, the rest of the... Uh, it's one thing to write an operating system. And how it, you, how it gets used is and is something that continues to amaze me.
0: Mm. Shiloh Khan, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking.
1: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Wow.